This morning, we're going to talk about God's design for marriage. And one of the big ideas that I'm working on in this is that the biblical vision for marriage is sometimes quite different than the cultural view of marriage that we're, we're operating in. And so we want to talk about that. And I want to start by telling you something I did in my 20s. Now, before I tell you this, I don't want you to judge me. We've all did things in our 20s we look back on and would, would really have rethought. But uh, so we did some crazy things in our 20s, but I'm, I, I'm almost, almost certain no one here did this. I took a side job running an abstinence program in the high schools. Yes. So my job was to train high school kids to give talks about why to wait until marriage before you have sex. It was the 90s. Like, we did things like this. And moreover, I was paid by the government to do it. <laughs> yep, you know, it's the 90s. Teen, sexu- uh, teen pregnancy rates were through the roof. The Soviet Union had fell. And you don't even want to know what went on in the Oval Office in the late 90s. So, um, so anyway, I, I took on this position for a couple years. And so the, the example of, so I would teach these kids, and we tried to come up with different talks. Sometimes it was just about the STDs, which I know they probably have some other name now, but uh, sexually transmitted diseases. And, man, the, you know, the kids would come up with some, like, really kind of scary things, like it would scare me out of having sex if I was a teenager. So that, that was one tack they took. Another was just more principles of why it makes sense to wait uh, till marriage before you're sexually active. And one of my favorites was one of my guys, Art. He was also one of my Young Life guys. So, so this is while I was doing Young Life ministry. This was a side thing um, that actually it helped because at the time, we had run out of money in the budget, and I wasn't getting paid. So this, this kept me going for a little bit. But uh, Art's talk was about how if you're going to a steakhouse, you know, they'll try to get you to fill up on bread. But you don't, you know, don't, don't eat the bread. You want to wait till the good stuff comes, right, till the steak is on your plate. And, and so that was his, his talk is, you know, you, know, you want to wait till marriage before you actually start to be sexually involved because you want to wait for the steak, Hey, it, I think Art's dad was a, a cow, a cattle rancher, so that made sense. Um, but in the midst of this, so we would go then around to other schools and give these talks. So they'd go and, and I remember one girl's response, and this is why I'm telling the story, because it really struck me about the disconnect between the ideal of marriage that we were kind of assuming within this structure, right, that, that the ideal of what marriage really could be and how great it could be versus the experience of marriage that many people have had. And she basically says, why does it make sense to wait when marriages always just end in divorce anyways? And for her, and for probably a majority of her friends, their parents were all divorced. So if if it's going to end in divorce, why does any of what you're saying make sense? That was hard to answer, right? That was a difficult thing, and and I, that that question stuck out to me. And I think that's 
we see in our culture a great disillusionment about marriage. They haven't seen it practiced well. And so it makes it challenging then to think about things like this. And so I'm, I want to share just a, a, a quote from Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And this is actually a bit dated, but I think it's still very much true. But he talks about the disillusionment of our culture with marriage that many has. He says, all of this um, shows an increasing wariness and pessimism about marriage in our culture. And this is especially true of younger adults. It says, they believe their chances of having a good marriage are not great. And even if a marriage is stable, there is in their view the horrifying prospect that it will become sexually boring. As the comedian Chris Rock has asked, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? And so he talks about that, says, you know, that was 15 years ago, but that's the reason why so many now choose to cohabit before they get married. They, they see no reason to, to, to get married right away. Might as well live together, try it out first. Um, Tim talks about how in 1960, virtually no one lived together before marriage. And then in today's stats, it's, it's a, you know, about half or more choose to do that because they're disillusioned with even the possibility of what of the biblical vision of marriage. When I ended last week, I, I wanted to try to make a point that there are things when it comes to men and women in marriage that Christianity and you, you could say the modern culture, even the, the feminist culture, we actually agree on as compared to the ancient views. And so biblically, we agree that women have equal status to men, that that's, that's true, that, you know, in contrast in the ancient world. We, we agree that women should have legal rights, that they should not be dependent on a husband or a father to, to, to do financial transactions. Like, that's, that's something that fits, that women should have e- equal quality in, in legalness. Here's the one I didn't mention, I was thinking about. We agree with the, the modern feminist culture that women can say no. Right? That, that men do not to get to control women's bodies. In fact, what the Bible calls for is for both men and women to learn how to control their bodies, to bring them in line with God's will. That's what the biblical call is. So we, we're, not, we're not against that. I, I, I know in, in kind of the, the certain progressive left, that they have almost this paranoid fear of Christianity that if what we were in charge, we would try to recreate the Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if anyone watches or reads sci-fi books, but The Handmaid's Tale is this, this really weird sci-fi future that's there's a Christian theocracy and young women are, are forced to be surrogates um, for, for older, sterile wives. That is not at all what biblical Christianity, the biblical vision of marriage is, right? That's, we don't, that's not what we're pushing for, um, we, we believe that men and women would come together and, and willingly be married for a lifetime. And so I want to kind of share, promote the biblical vision of marriage because the, the truth is there are, there's quite a big difference between how society views marriage and the biblical vision for marriage. And the biggest thing comes down to this is society views marriage, sorry, getting this to stick just right. Okay. Society views marriage as a social construct. 
that means it's, it's created by the society. And it then can become whatever society needs it to be. So marriage is something that you sort of shape to fit the needs of society, a social construct. Biblical Christianity says marriage is designed by God for the good of both men and women. So the title of today's sermon is Marriage. What was God thinking? Right? Like, what was he thinking? What is the design? What is his plan? And I would suggest that God's plan is good. And his design for marriage is as a, a great gift for, for humanity. But I say that realizing that, that I'm certain some here have seen a lot of brokenness in marriage. Maybe you've gone through a divorce. Or maybe you've just seen marriages that have, have been not well and have brought more pain than joy. And so I think it's vital to understand the vision of what marriage was designed to be. And maybe you're single and you don't know if you'll ever get married. I think even then it's still good to know what was God doing in giving marriage? Because even as a single person, we're called to support one another in building these good marriages. So even if you never get married, we, we want to support one another. Um, and so it's vital. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at we're going to look at the first wedding in Genesis 2, and we're going to talk about the purpose of marriage, the picture of marriage, the essence of marriage, the priority of marriage, the challenging call of marriage, and then we're going to close by showing that God even had something bigger in mind when he gave us marriage. And, and in that way, it's, it's really applicable to whether you're married or not, that there's value in looking at this. So, Genesis 2 we see the, the first wedding and we see the purpose of marriage. It starts, the passage starts with saying um, the, that God saw that it was not good for the man to be alone. Now, this is, the man is Adam and he's in a perfect environment where you'd think he had everything he needs, right? He has, he has a, all the food he needs, you know, the trees, the fruit, the, and he has a job, work to do, to tend the ground. You think everything would be good. And up to that point, everything that God says, God did this, and it was good. God made, you know, the finished creation. It was very good. This is the first thing that it says is not good. That is not good for man to be alone. So God made something that then was inherently incomplete. And so the rest of the part of this is then, okay, what will fill that need? What will make it so that man is not alone? Um, well, let me, actually, I'll get to that in a second. So, so the purpose of marriage then is companionship, that a husband and wife would be together and walk alongside each other in life and in their marriage, that there, in essence, would be a, a friendship, a companionship. They would be together. Um, it talks later about there's an intimacy. It says they were naked and not ashamed. That's not just talking physical. In marriage, you get to know each other and see each other, see things about your partner that no one else will know. 
and you're not allowed to tell. I can't even use them in sermon illustrations, right? <laughs> no, but, but you're, you know, this is not just talking about eros, erotic love. This is talking about a philos, a friendship love between a husband and wife. That is God's intention. That is the, the purpose in a biblical marriage. And I want to note that biblical marriage is not the same as traditional marriage. Sometimes, you know, they said, oh, Christians want traditional marriage. No, we want to see biblical marriage. So traditional marriage, Euripides in the 5th century B.C., Greek, Greek guy, here's what he says. He says, if only children could be gotten some other way without the female sex, if women didn't exist, human life would be rid of all its miseries. He, I think he had issues. But that reflects the Hellenistic culture of its time that, well, marriage is really only necessary for producing children. That's the only purpose men would have for women. Um, and that got absorbed by the, the, the people of God. So here's a quote from one of the Jewish rabbis of that time, the Rabbi Jose ben Johanan of Jerusalem, and he counsels, Talk not much with womankind. They said this of a man's own wife. How much more of his fellow's wife? He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law, and the last will inherit Gehenna. Gehenna is like hell, like the destruction. So where did he get this from? He talks about studying the law. Did he get it from Genesis 2? Or did he get it from the Hellenistic culture? Did he get it from Aristotle and guys like Euripides? Right? This idea that you shouldn't even talk much with your own wife. What the Bible says instead is God gave us marriage so that we would have a companion who would be with us throughout our whole life. So... Then it gives the picture of marriage. And it's a great picture. It's simple. The two become one. So, God presents, it shows that men and women are both of the same essence and yet different at the same time. And it does that through the narrative of the story. So God says it's not good for the man to be alone. What does he then do? He brings all the animals to Adam, um, and Adam names them. He gives them names. And he can see that none of these animals could fill what God's intent purpose would be that a, that a wife could do. So he could see that. So he goes through on and none of them. So then what does God do? It says he takes a rib from within the man, so that the woman would be of the same substance of man. That's, that's part of the idea. So he takes the rib from the man. Now, let me talk about that word rib. It's, it's the Hebrew word selo. And here's from another, uh, another quote uh, that describes this. It says, in the book of Exodus, also written by Moses, the word selo, which is kind of a variant of the word for, for side or rib, says the word is also used... Um, so the word serlo and selot, which is the plural, are used to refer to the equal sides of the Ark of the Covenant. 
So the same word translated rib is also translated side. And when there, Moses was talking in Exodus, it says there were two sides to the, to the Ark of the Covenant, right? One side, the other side. It says the word is also used for the sides of the altar. In both cases, meaning the equal and opposite sides of the object. So it's not primarily just talking about like, you know, the rib as a bone. It's not like men have one less rib than women do or anything. In, in giving this picture, it's saying you have two sides. God took the side of one of the man and made out of a woman so that what happens then? When the two sides come together, they fit. They're different so they can fit together. They can interlock, Right? If they, were, if they were the same, if man and woman were, were exactly the same, it, it wouldn't fit together. But they fit, they interlock, but yet they're still of the same substance so that they can unite together into one thing. So in marriage, the two become one. That's the picture of marriage. What happens when God presents the woman to Adam? She gets the name Eve later. It's just a woman. When God presents the woman to Adam, he says, this at last, right? Or it'd be finally, right? He had seen that none of the animals could meet that, that companionship that he needed. But now that he, God has brought him a wife, he says, at last, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I need. Men, husbands, do we see our, our wives in that way? <sighs> this at last. God, you've given me this great gift, this one who, who, who can meet this need, this companionship in my life. Wives, do we look at our husbands that way? That is the call of, of marriage. And says, she is like me. It says, the man said, this is the last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Right? It's that idea that she was taken from me, so she's the same substance, but, and their bone and bone and flesh were the same thing. And, and it's that picture of the two becoming one when Jesus talked about marriage. He cites, he says, that let the two become one flesh to emphasize the permanence of marriage that is meant to be a, a relationship for the, the rest of our lives. And that leads to the third aspect that I want to talk about, the essence of marriage. The essence of marriage of a wedding is a covenant promise. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and shall hold fast to his wife. The promise of marriage is not to feel a certain way about one another. It is a promise to be together. Right? To have and to hold. To love and to cherish. To, what are the other? For better for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. No matter how many surgeries they've had in the last seven years. <laughs> until we are parted by death. Is that the, the vision that our culture has of marriage? And so I, I saw this in an article. It says, in a recent survey... Many millennials indicated that they'd, they'd be open to a beta marriage in which couples would commit to each other for a certain number of years. Two years seemed to be the right amount, after which they could renew, renegotiate, or split. 
right? You're not committing to spending, being together for always. It would be a temporary thing. And if marriage is a social construct, why not redesign it to fit the modern times? But if marriage truly is designed by God, given by God for our good, then maybe we need to, to hold on to what God has given and maybe seek to, to honor that. The next is the priority of marriage. And, and this comes from, from where it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So this idea of leaving your father and mother, one commentator talked about how this actually shows this has to be a divine thing because in the ancient world, it was not this way. You did not, the, the, the greatest in the ancient world, the greatest commitment you had was to your parents. And the idea that you would actually transfer that greatest priority from parents now to a wife, that, that would not have occurred to anyone in the ancient world. That's not how it worked. In fact, it usually tended to be the other way around. The woman would leave her family and join the husband's family. But it says it the opposite here, right? The husband, they leave, the, and they, they leave their parents and they start a new family that she now has the highest priority in his list of demands. doesn't mean you don't still honor your father and mother. You still do. But your highest priority on that list becomes the wife, um, Adam was to put the needs of his wife ahead of that of his parents. Of course, he didn't have parents. He was Adam. Like, but, but we have parents. Um, so this is talking about marriage. It shows that it's talking about marriage and not just what happened to happen between this couple. So, um, so when you get married, if you're, if you're thinking about this or if you've never, like, you, you, you kind of realize that, that the needs of your spouse really do have to be your first focus. God had to teach this to me. I'm a bit slow, and I was newly married, and I, I, I think God taught me this in, in, in a way that, that sort of was obvious enough that even I could not screw this up. So it was getting near Memorial Day weekend, and the, uh, I, I was going to head to a Young Life Leader weekend. Right? And it was always one of my favorite aspects to take a bunch of young people. We talk about what it means to be a, a leader, a volunteer. And so I was heading off to that. My wife was going up to some kind of shower with her family. We, 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 we couldn't quite remember, was it either a baby shower or the wedding shower for his, her brother who was getting married that summer? One, one or the other. Maybe it was both. But, but she, it was kind of like this, this new thing. Like she had to be there. And so she wakes up on Friday morning of this, this weekend. And I'm, you know, we're both hand, handling separate ways. And she wakes up with this weirdest, I don't know, call it a crick in her neck. And, and she's like this. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? What are you doing? And, and she could not, literally could not turn her head. And, and it was like, like she was in pain. But even beyond just being in pain, she could not like function. It got, you know, as the day went on, it didn't get any better. And we, you know, talking, we quickly realized she could not drive the four-hour drive to, to go be at her, at this, this baby shower, wedding shower, whatever shower, right? And so the only way she was going to get there 
was for me to not go on my thing and take her to that. So again, God made it obvious so that even someone like me could see, yeah, I have to tube my thing to put her needs first. That's what God does in marriage. He, he calls us to tube our things and to learn how to put the needs of another person ahead of our own. This does not come natural to us. We don't like this a lot of times. But in a traditional marriage, a wife exists to serve her husband's needs. In a biblical marriage, the husband is called to see, see, to put the needs of his wife ahead of his own. In the same passage where it talks about a, a wife should, should be subject to her husband, you know, not work against her husband, not undermine her husband and show him respect. In that same passage, it says this to husbands about how we are to love our wives. So let me read this whole thing from Ephesians 5. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the, of the water with the words, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any, any such thing, that she might be holy and without blameless, blameless, blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So this is in the New Testament, probably the most classic place where it talks about what biblical marriage should look like. And I can guarantee you the people in the ancient world like, what? A man should, should do what? Love his wife as his own body? That this is, this is crazy stuff. You know, love your wife as much as Christ loved the church who gave his life up for her? Now, I want to note something. The second part where it talks about, it says that he might uh, sanctify her and, or, um, you know, through the cleansing of the washing of the water with the word, that is what Jesus does for the church. So the verse 20, 26 and 27 is not so much what husbands do. We, we cannot sanctify our wives, you know, or wash their sins away. Only Christ could do that. So Paul in this is sort of mixing together what husbands are to do for their wife and what Christ does for the church. So 26 and 27, um, you know, it's not what we do for our wives, but it points to something. It points to the truth that, it, that in marriage, we come in needing to be sanctified, both men and women. So, um, go and do the next slide. I, I, I've learned something from Baby Yoda. <laughs> Laughing at your mistakes can lengthen your life Laughing at your wife's mistakes can shorten it. <laughs> the point of that is, is we come into marriage and we will all make mistakes because every marriage is the union of two sinners, two sinful people, right? If you're, if you're waiting to find someone who's sin-free so that you could say, ah, I think, I think this person can marry, you keep, you're, you're never going to find them. Um, Tim Keller talks about this and he He's so good on this. If you, if you want a book on marriage, I definitely recommend Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. But he talks about the essence of sin, according to the Bible, is living for ourselves rather than for God and the people around us. You know, when you get married, it does not take you long to discover that you married a sinner. 
it might take you a little longer to realize you're one of the, you're even the worst sinner than they are, right? You're just as bad. Because we each seek to, to, to meet our own needs first by net nature. But within marriage, we have to learn to put the needs of others ahead of our own. This is the challenge and call of marriage. The challenge is God unites two people who are inherently selfish. And then he says, love one another. Right? Don't just do it when you feel like it. Don't just do it when it's, you know, well, you know, you know, they'll do it for you. You'll do it for, no. You know, out of, uh, Philippians 2 talks about this call for all of us and says, you know, out of reverence for Christ, uh, put the needs of others ahead of your own because that's what Christ did for us. But it is in learning to do that, we actually begin to grow towards Christ-likeness and we learn to put the needs of another person ahead of our own. And, and marriage can help teach that. It's one of God's mechanisms. Putting us in this relationship where, in a sense, we have to do that at times. And, and so God uses that to sanctify us in that way, to, to make us more like Christ. Now, if that doesn't work, God has other tactics. One of them is give them children. <laughs> right? Put children in their life, you know, little you know, scrawling or uh, crying infants who, uh, who definitely need you to put their needs first. But what do you discover? Parents, you know this. That when you actually sideline your own desires and you sacrifice and you give for another human being, you find a joy and satisfaction in that that you would find nowhere else. That it's actually, when you focused on meeting your own desires, you're never going to be truly happy. But when you learn to live and love other people, not only are we becoming more like Christ, we're finding what we're made for. That's what God is up to. That's what God was thinking when he created marriage. So what was God thinking? He was thinking companionship. That we would have someone who would be with us for life to the end right, to one of us ends at least, a partnership for life that we would not be in it alone, we'd be in it together. We'd figure out together how life is meant to work and, and each, because every, every person's individual, different, we're all unique. And so, so that partnership's gonna always look a little different. He would give us a place to learn to love others, that marriage has an impact on our spiritual life. And he gave marriage to us for the, for the bearing and nurture of children, also mixed into Genesis is be fruitful and multiply, right? That's part of, of God. And so that, so that a, ideally, and in this world, nothing is ever ideal. Ideally, a parent, a child would grow up with a mother and a father who love them and can show them all the stuff. But marriage was given, I'd say it's just for one other reason. God was pointing ahead to something. When God invented marriage, he already had in mind the saving work of Jesus. When God established Genesis 2, he already knew that what Jesus would do to bring our salvation. But the Bible often uses the metaphor of marriage to talk about God and his people. So in the Old Testament, it was, it was Yahweh the Lord with the, the people of Israel. And so often, in that metaphor, God's talking about, I was faithful to you, you were not faithful to me. That, that it should, the unfaithfulness, there is like, 
like a husband to an adulterous wife, and yet God remained faithful to the people of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus, the Son of God, shows up, and he starts calling himself the bridegroom. Why? Because he's looking to, to have a, uh, he's looking to, to have the church be his wife. It would not come into, after his death, the church would come to exist, but Paul, Paul gives this picture in, Genesis, uh, in Ephesians 2. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, so he's quoting Genesis 2, um, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So quoting that, then he says, this is Paul, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see what that's saying? He's saying in Ephesians 5 that Genesis 2.24, Paul is saying, yeah, he was already referring to Christ and the church even back then. Marriage had this, this, this idea of teaching us about the, a relationship based on a covenant promise. What's the promise that Jesus makes to us at the end of Matthew 28? It says, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. If we become his, if we enter into that relationship, he will not leave us nor forsake us. He will not, um, we will never be alone because we can affirm and know God is with us. Even when we stumble, even when we fall, he does not give up on us. That's the covenant promise that God makes through, through Jesus Christ. Um, I will be with you always. And so to finish, we jump to the end of the Bible, right? The, we had the marriage at the beginning of the Bible. Guess what? There's a marriage, a wedding at the end of the Bible. And, and Revelation 19, just a few chapters before the end, and it says, it starts off, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So this is the heavenly host. So at, at, a, at a wedding, what do you do? You invite people, right? You try to fill, fill the pews. You have men, men's side, bride side, groom side, one of the other, I don't know, whatever. But, um, but, but you have it full of people, right, to, to bear witness. Well, who's going to bear witness? The multitude of the heavenly host will bear witness, and they are not going to be quiet. It's not going to be a tame, you know, like really serene wedding. It is going to be, you know, loud peals of thunder. There's going to be cheering and shouting when they when we see God's ultimate plan come together in the end. Um, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So the lamb is Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. So he became the lamb of God who took away our sins. The bride is the church, not an individual church congregation, but the church, the followers of Jesus Christ throughout history and and. Over time, it is the church united together through, by the Holy Spirit. So one, one Savior and one, one church, one bride. And it says that the bride is clothed by the righteousness of Christ. Um, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. How did he make herself ready? By, by putting her faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we become included in the bride. And then, but moreover, it says it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And it tells us what that is. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
So we are declared righteous, holy, by, by Christ, right? He makes us holy through the washing of his word. But, but we're given this opportunity to dress ourselves in the righteous and good deeds. So this means when believers in Christ, when disciples, when we, we do acts of service and sacrifice, when we feed the hungry, when we go visit the sick or those in prison, when we, we, we do acts of service in the community, when we show love when it's difficult, those all become part of the, dressing, the, the wedding gown, all become part of the, the glory revealed in that day. It is granted to her to clothe herself with these, these righteous deeds. So what do you have after the wedding? Before the honeymoon. My wife told me we had to do this before the honeymoon. A, a reception, a banquet, right? Verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a wedding banquet that's going to happen and, and the, the invitation is open for us to be a part of it. The great wedding feast. Blessed are those who are invited. Friends, you have been invited to the wedding banquet, to the great feast. But you have to RSVP. Have you RSVP'd? Have you said, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want to accept the promise that you've given that I can live with you forever. Have you said yes to this relationship? Father in heaven, we thank you for the great plans that you have for us. We pray for the marriages that we have. We know that no marriage is perfect and hits the ideal painted in your word, but we pray that you would bless our marriages. For those who are single, may you guide them in, in their life path and whether to be married, but, uh, and, if, and if you do, lead them to that person who will give your blessings upon them. But moreover, Lord, help us be a people who, who are pointing others to the ultimate marriage that we can have by knowing you for eternity. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.